Bowl, Chiefs, huh? Is this the year? Last time they won it was the year I was born. So I don't really remember that so much. Yes, it's been a long time. Hey, there's a phrase mentioned in the Bible several times that we're going to talk about uh, today. It's, it's a part of a title of a book that I've spent a lot of time reading in the last couple of years. It talks about intimacy with Christ, and that phrase is this, one thing. Isn't it nice when things get just boiled down to one thing? We ask that in interviews with people all the time. You know, we say to people, man, if you could boil down your experience to one thing that you would pass on to the next generation, what would that thing be? Well, we're not going to, what we're going to be sharing the next three weeks doesn't really boil the Bible down to some easy, you know, one thing formula of how to live your life. But it looks at, at three individual lives and the one thing that they needed in the moment that they were in and the circumstances that they were dealing with at the time. In the first two weeks, uh, this week and next, we're going to be looking at conversations that Jesus had uh, with, a, with an individual person, kind of talking about the one thing that was needed for them at that moment. So I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 today, it's page 702. Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 17, and you see the title, The Rich Young Man. Maybe you've heard this story before. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this guy seems kind of sincere. Uh, he's got some interesting actions. Tell me some of the things that he does. What are some of his actions as he goes up to Jesus? What do you notice about the way he came to him? What are some things that he did? He ran up. He knelt down. What else? What does he call him? He calls him good. Okay. So these are interesting actions for a few reasons because people who were kind of important, this guy was rich, a ruler, he probably inherited some money and kind of came along it uh, that way in life. Um, you don't run around when you're important. People run to you, okay? So he's running up and he falls down on his knees before Jesus. Now that might sound, you know, Noteworthy, but Jesus is really kind of this marginalized person that the culture really didn't think a whole lot of. And so for this kind of important rich guy to come to run up to Jesus and to fall down before him and kind of humble himself like that, I mean, that's really different. And then he calls him good. And, and, and good in, in the, in the you know, original language of the Bible that this was written in uh, means good on the inside, like just all the way to his core, he says, you're a good teacher. And people didn't call somebody good unless it was God. And so there's a lot of interesting things about the way that he approaches Jesus. And on the surface, kind of based on first impressions, it would appear like this guy is pretty sincere, that he's really um, seeking God, but then he opens his mouth. <laughs> and what do you notice about the question that he asks Jesus, what do you notice about the question? Raise your hand, just like at school. Yes. Okay, in what way? 
He's wanting to know, yeah, how he can get something. Yeah, he uses the word inherit. Yeah. What else? He says, what must who do? What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now let's look at the first part of his question then. What must I do? So it's obvious by that statement that he's really not interested in Jesus being his savior. He's really not interested in, in, in learning about you know, what he needs to be forgiven for, to be made right with God. He really kind of wants to know, how can I be my own savior by my good actions? Okay, that's kind of what he's asking. What's interesting is to look at the conversation that Jesus had just had right before this conversation. So if you back up in the scripture, just one story, it's the story of Jesus and the little children. You're probably pretty familiar with it. Jesus talking about how important it is to let the kids come to him. And in verse 15, he says this. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. How, how do little kids receive gifts? Man, with open arms, right? They're not really thinking about, have I been good? Do I deserve this? It's just like, hey, you're giving me a gift? I want it, right? And so there's a big difference then. Jesus is making this contrast. He says, we need to receive the kingdom of God. We need to receive it like a gift. Not something that we go out and earn by saying, what good things can I do to get something from you? So it's a very different conversation. So now we start to see this thing kind of coming into focus here a little bit. What, what seemed like a pretty earnest and well-meaning interaction and question conversation now starts to turn a little bit of a dark corner. What this man, what is this man really seeking? Kind of like Kendra said, he wants the goods, right? He wants eternal life. He wants the blessings of God. Does he really want God just for the relationship part? Probably not. You see, the world is full of people who are seeking something, right? People out there, and maybe you've been in this place, or maybe you are right now, people are seeking something. They're, they're seeking fulfillment. They're seeking purpose. They're seeking meaning. They're seeking, you know, how to, how to live a good life so that people, you know, think well of you, how to make life make sense. They're seeking love and hope and happiness. But how many people are really seeking God just for him? Not really many people doing that. In fact, the Apostle Paul reiterates this truth by, by quoting some, some psalms. And, and it's recorded in Romans 3, verse 11. It says, Paul says, there is no, well, actually, this is psalms. He's quoting the psalms. There's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. That'll certainly make you think a little bit, won't it? What is it? that I'm truly seeking? Is it God or just what he can do for me? He was asking, this, this guy in the story was asking, what must I do? And Jesus is going to answer him by describing to him the kind of person that he needs to be. Let's look at verse 18. So Jesus answers his question. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. 
Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. See, a major intimacy or, or barrier to intimacy with Christ is a misunderstanding of who we are and a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. See, the man really didn't know who he was. Like a lot of Jews at that time, he had kind of boiled down the, the commands of God, the Old Testament. He had kind of been living them on the surface level, focused on, on adhering to them at the outward appearance. Okay? And so Jesus comes along, and he, and he starts to talk about some of the Ten Commandments, and he focuses on the ones that have to do with how we interact and relate with other people. And this guy looks at him, and he says, yeah, I've done all of those perfectly. I'm sure Jesus is thinking, really? <laughs> See, that's why Jesus spent so much time focusing on the spirit of the law when he came. He said things like, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you that if you hate your brother or angry at your brother, or you call your brother a fool, you've murdered him in your heart. Or you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I'm telling you that if you even look on a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. You see, Jesus enters a new and deeper standard aimed at your internal motives instead of just your outward actions. He's reminding us that the Ten Commandments weren't given to us as kind of this checklist of things that we strive to attain, like at some day I'll be able to do all of those if I just keep working hard enough. Actually, the Ten Commandments were given to us to do just the opposite, to show us we can never do all these things. And it means that we need a savior. We need grace. We need forgiveness because we'll never be able to pull it off. So it's why Jesus came in the first place. This young guy thought he was righteous. He really didn't know his true condition. He didn't know how much forgiveness he really needed. And he really didn't know the kind of person that Jesus was. And that's probably true of all of us, I bet. Most of us probably don't really have a real accurate picture of ourselves and how much we need God. And most of us probably don't have a real accurate picture of really who Jesus is. When we don't know who Jesus is, we probably won't know who we are either. You see, a lack of real self-awareness of us really kind of knowing honestly, having a clear picture of ourselves, coupled with a not very clear picture of another person that we're relating to, makes it very difficult for an honest and good relationship to exist because we're both kind of living out of this lie or this you know, kind of false image that we have. So what are we seeking? Jesus is saying, what you have to be seeking is knowing me. Not just trying to follow the rules or trying to be a good person because you can't do that anyways. You need to know me. Now we're being pretty hard on this young guy, or at least I am. You guys aren't really talking. So, um, But I do want to give him some props for recognizing something. You see, this, this same story is recorded in, in the book of Matthew and the book of, of uh, Luke as well. Uh, each of them with a little bit different twist as the you know, eyewitness account is writing down this. And, and the author of Matthew, it's, it's found in Matthew 19.20, he records that the young man says, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? See, in other words, he had, he had at least some recognition of, of his need. 
He had some awareness that he was lacking something. He's saying, Jesus, I've got a thirst. I've got some unfulfilled desires. I've tried the religion thing. I've tried to follow the rules. What am I still missing? I want eternal life, but obviously following the Ten Commandments, you know, at least we thought he was, wasn't good enough, at least he thought. What else is there? So he has an awareness of a need. The problem is, is that he's asking the wrong questions. Let's look at verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And the first thing you really need to notice and we all need to pay attention to is that first little phrase there. He looked at him and he loved him. That's such an important reminder for us as we go through life and we kind of stumble along and, and fail and trip, trip up along the way is that we have no idea the depth of compassion and patience that Christ has for each one of us. I mean, each one of us is his cherished creation and he wants nothing more than for us to get it in life. He is pulling for us so hard to, to figure this thing out, to receive it, to understand that we can't earn it, to, to understand and step into this amazing and abundant life that he has for us. He's striving for that for us. He wants that. But you see, the flip side is also true about Christ. And that's this, is that he will confront our superficial interest in him. Like that song we sang just a minute ago, he cuts away our lies, he sees through our disguise. You see, Jesus will kind of cut through our smoke screens and find out if we're really serious about being his follower. And he goes up to this one man, he does that with him, he says, you know what, I, I'm, I love you, but one thing you lack. And I'm sure this guy is like taking a big breath and he's like, oh man, just one thing? Just tell me what that one thing is, man. I'll knock it out today. No problem. I thought it was going to be like a list of things. Just one? And Jesus looks at him and he says, sell everything you have. See, you've got another idol before me, and I want you to get rid of it. Now, I want you to make sure you hear me on this. Because a lot of people kind of boil this story down to just a story about wealth. And that if you're rich, you know, you got to sell everything. And that's really not what this story is about at all. Really what this story is about is what hinders our full devotion to Christ. And for some people that might be money. It wasn't for everybody that Jesus talked to. Jesus encountered other rich, people's, rich people in scripture and he didn't tell them to sell everything. Some of you might be familiar with John chapter 3. There's this story between Jesus and this religious leader named Nicodemus, who I'm sure was a man of wealth. And Nicodemus is coming to Jesus because he's hearing this new teaching that sounds very different than what he'd learned in the Old Testament. And he's having a hard time wrapping his mind around this kingdom of God that Jesus keeps talking about. But Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, hey, in order to get this, you need to sell everything. What does he say? In order to understand this, you have to what? 
be born again. He's saying, Nicodemus, your problem is that in order to get what I'm talking about, you got to get out of the box that you've been in of following the rules and doing things on the outside. And you, got, you need a new heart and a new mind, a new mind and a new heart. <laughs> got to get your voice and your expressions together, okay? You need a new mind, a new heart to understand this kingdom that I'm talking about. See, his stumbling block wasn't his wealth, it was his pride. He thought he had this thing figured out. And Jesus comes along and says, you might not really know much, really. <laughs> you might have to consider the fact that what you do know might be totally wrong. God didn't ask Abraham to sell everything. He said, I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac, because Isaac has become an idol in your life. And so Abraham did that. He was willing to do that. He laid down his son, Isaac, on the altar, gets the knife ready. And because Abraham was willing to lay down his most treasured possession, God rescued Isaac. And maybe if this young man that Jesus is talking to had been willing to sell it all, if he said, okay, man, I'll go to the bank right now, maybe Jesus would have said, you know what, that's really not necessary. I just want to make sure you're with me. See, a major hindrance for all of us in terms of our ability to have this deep intimacy with Christ is how tied we are to our earthly treasures. How much those things consume us. How hard we grip on to the things of this world compared to the treasures in heaven that Christ offers that says they're so much better, they're so much more lasting. But one thing is consistent throughout the Gospels is that Jesus never pairs down his requirements about what it means to be a disciple, a follower of his. He says some really hard things like this. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And if you're like me, I read passages like that and I kind of try to massage them a little bit, you know? What does he really mean there? Can't I just pray a prayer and be baptized and call it good? It makes me wonder if I were going to go to lunch today after church and sit down with Jesus, what kinds of things that he would point out in my life that are idols, that kind of push him to the margins? What is it that we call being a Christian in America? Is it the same definition that Jesus has of what a disciple is? Or have we kind of made it palpable, palatable? What's the word? Yeah, something like that. Something with a P that sounds cool. <laughs> have we toned it down so that we can swallow it a little bit easier? If Jesus talked to each one of us and said, hey, you need to get rid of that because I can tell that you're putting it before me. I can see the way it consumes your time, your energy, your passions, your money. And you love it more than you love me. What would we do? What would we say in response to that? 
You see, Jesus is trying to get this guy's attention. He's really trying to get all of our attention. He's trying to help us understand. He's trying to help this young man understand this principle. That if you have nothing else, but you have me, you've got everything. You don't need all this stuff of the world. If you have me, you've got everything that you need. So after striking at the heart of the young man's affections, he gives the same invitation that he gave to the two young followers that we looked at several weeks ago in John chapter 1. He says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then he says, come and follow me. And the disciples in John chapter 1 that we looked at, Andrew and John, did just that. And so did several other of Christ's followers. They laid their nets down, they left their jobs, they left their family, they left their friends, and they followed Christ. And through that process of following, they, they got enlightened, and, and things started to change in their life. And they became a part of a movement that's still transforming the world to this day. Now, when confronted with his idol, what does this rich man do? At the end of the story, it says he walks away sad because he couldn't part with his material wealth. Pastor Tim Keller did a, did a message on this uh, scripture as well, and this is what he said about this passage. He says, has Jesus ever offended you and sent you away sorrowing, dealt with you, shown you what's wrong with you? Have you ever been confronted with the real Christ of the Bible? In the center of your life, you're in bondage. And you're enslaved to the things that give you your identity. And Jesus says, you've got to have me or you're lost. Have you been confronted by that Jesus? Has he sent you away upset, angry, feeling like he's unreasonable? Or has he turned your life upside down and filled you with joy? Those are really the only two alternatives. The only, I'm sorry, yeah, the only thing that's really impossible in this sort of interaction is indifference. If he's showing you your idols and you're sad, you're at least dealing with the real Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't asking us to have it all together or to follow the rules or even to really kind of understand everything about him, have all of our questions answered before we'll act. But he is saying that indifference to his call to be a disciple, to be a follower of his, is not an option. See, we really have two choices. We're either moving towards intimacy with him, which means that we're confronting some of the idols that we've had in life, and, and we're getting rid of them, or at least we're opening ourselves up to God and saying, God, show me what are some of the hindrances, what are some of the barriers to intimacy with you that I need to see. So we're either doing that or we're kind of just having Christianity and Jesus and being a follower of Christ on our terms, the way we want it. There, there's really no middle ground. There's no, oh, I'm just, I don't know what I think. Well, then if you don't know what you think, you're going backwards. Because <laughs> Jesus is calling you this way. And he's confronting some things in your life, constantly confronting us with things that we put before him. So where do you find yourself today? And I want to give you the secret. Isn't that always good when they tell you the answer? Here's the secret. When Jesus cuts us to the core and, and kind of shows us what some of the ruling idols are in our hearts, the secret is to stay, to abide, 
to follow. I wonder what that young man, how the story might have been a little bit different if he had stayed a little while longer and maybe started kind of processing that, being willing to consider that maybe Jesus was right. This quote puts it well. It says, a man can misunderstand the divinity or the the God nature of Christ. He can be blind to himself. He can misunderstand God's grace and still be saved if he will commit to staying with God. Peter, Andrew, John, Matthew, and others did not fully understand the lordship of Christ. They certainly did not understand the plan of grace, but they stayed with Jesus. They were willing to commit to a lifestyle of learning from him. They apprenticed themselves to him for the long haul. That is the path to discipleship and intimacy with Christ. If you are willing to launch out with Christ on a long journey from brokenness to wholeness, if you're willing to walk all the way, every hard step, then you are a wise man, even if you are not young or wealthy. One thing that you lack, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. You see, Jesus is our model in this. Because before man was ever created, Jesus was in heaven with his Father, and things were pretty good there for him. It was perfect. But the one thing that he lacked was you and I. And so he sold it all, so to speak, and he gave it to the poor, you and me, so that we might be with him. See, we are the one thing that Jesus lacked. And intimacy with him, with the real Jesus, not just the one that we kind of create, but the the real Christ in Scripture is the one thing that we lack. Today we're going to be coming to the communion table. And it's always a, a reminder of his invitation to come and see. It's always an opportunity for us to kind of confront our idols, barriers, our hindrances, what's keeping us from fully receiving what God has for us. It's a reminder that we can have the living water that Jesus talks about. It's a reminder to taste and see that the Lord is good and that only his love can satisfy us. We're going to give you a couple of minutes just to be silent and just connect with God, talk with him about what you need to talk about. At that time, the ushers will dismiss you. You can come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and then return to your seat. Let me uh, pray for us to set this time up. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, um, that you've got kind of this, this perfect balance between grace and truth. And God, we see it in this story. We see the way that you looked at, at this young man that you loved, that you died for, and how you loved him. And God, how, how patient and compassionate and forgiving you are with each one of us. But Lord, you're you're full of grace, but you're also full of truth. And so I thank you that you confront us, that you kind of call out our bluff when we're really just kind of being superficial about our pursuit with you. You push on us if we're willing to, to hear it. And you say, you know, you're still lacking something. You're putting other things before me. I don't have your full attention. 
your, your heart's full desire. I want to be everything to you. So God, thank you for confronting us on that. God, give us hearts that are open to hear what some of those things are that need to go. And give us the faith to believe that whatever it is that you're offering us yourself is so much better than what we're settling for. God, we give you this time. Pray that you just hear our prayers today.